Garfield, wake up. Good morning, John. No time for small talk, Garfield. It's Christmas morning, and you know what that means. Of course I do. Christmas means presents. Lots and lots of presents. First things first, Garfield. You can't open presents on an empty stomach. Here are your breakfast lasagnas. You may eat your way to the tree. I'm Josh. I'm Joe, and this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where, for the next month, we're browsing in our video store shelves to choose some jolly holiday staff picks. And Josh, goodness, you picked a cancer movie for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just this uplifting, you know, Christmas holiday film. When I told Adam what I picked, he was like, that's not a Christmas movie. I was like, I know, I know, I know. Like, <laughs> please, everyone out there, don't come at me. I realize it's not your traditional Christmas slash holiday pick, and it's certainly not an uplifting <laughs> film. However, it gives you a lot of feelings. I mean, to go along the lines of why I picked this, I wanted to do another queer holiday film because I love that feeling of, you know, chosen family and just obviously giving that genre more attention because I don't think that there are enough, again, don't come at me, quality queer or uh, (laughs) holiday films. There are queer holiday films. I just don't think that they're all, I don't know, they're pretty like low budget. They're usually fairly campy they always kind of have sort of this like comedic element to it which is great i mean i love happiest season but i like having you know more depth in some of those films and this i mean that's exactly what this is spoiler alert i mean it's yes it's a cancer film it's a serious subject but we'll get into the details of your thoughts and my thoughts at the end but this the scenes that we do get at christmas are very standout to me and wonderful. I mean, I love it. Like, I love the idea of, and the message behind everything that the main character, Michael Osiello, says and how he feels about Christmas. But again, I'm jumping ahead. Well, it's fitting for me since my 2023 was mostly defined by quite a cancer scare of my own. Uh, so we're just running with the theme to end off the year. <laughs> yeah, I hope this wasn't like triggering. I was thinking <laughs> no. that because I've had my own health stuff this year, too. And, you know, it really like makes you reflect. I feel like this time of year and the holiday really makes people self-reflect a lot on their life or the family and when you add a movie in like this, it can sometimes be for the worse. So you seem to be in, in good spirits right now. So hopefully you're not totally bummed out. Well, I mean, you've been saying that, you know, is it a Christmas movie or not? There are Christmas scenes, there are Christmas themes. So, I mean, this comes up a lot where, where if you're looking at lists of what constitutes a Christmas movie. Sometimes there are ones that don't, but still have great scenes. So do you have any favorite Christmas sequences in films that were otherwise not particularly Christmassy. Yeah, it's no secret to everyone that knows me and has come over um, during my parties that I love to make video mixes. And so, in fact, I do have a Christmas mix that I've never actually played around friends. So I got to make sure, make it a point to have a Christmas party one of these days so I could show it. But one of the things that I did few years ago when I made my Christmas mix for my family is like, of course, I can't go ham and do like, you know, these over the top Lil Nas X, you know, Santa Claus themed songs with like, you know, guys dancing shirtless and et cetera. I tone it down a little bit. So I pull clips from movies that have Christmas themes, you know, and TV shows and stuff. And so my number one, hands down favorite scene 
that I always include in a mix is the scene from Love, Simon. It's set to Someday at Christmas by the Jackson 5, and it's just a very short sequence and segment in the film, which I almost, almost picked that as this this choice, my Christmas choice. But, like, there's even less Christmas in that movie than this one, than Spoiler Alert, because Spoiler Alert at least comes back pretty continuously on the theme of Christmas, talking about the character's love for it and all of that. Love, Simon just pretty much has that one scene. So I had to say that's top tier still every year. I post it on social media, and it's always my favorite. But then on the broad spectrum, one of my all-time favorite scenes that I'm so thankful that someone showed to me many years ago is from the movie Female Trouble, John Waters mm-hmm. um, and Divine. Of course, it's the iconic I want cha-cha heels for Christmas scene where she doesn't get them and she gets really pissed and just like fights with her parents and knocks the tree over and her mo- mother's just lying underneath like, no, Don, not on Christmas. It's if you have if you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. It's it's iconic. It's fantastic. But then other ones that, you know, I did consider for my pick is Bridget Jones' Diary comes up a lot as like a Christmas movie. And I, you know, again, don't don't necessarily consider it one. I suppose it's probably pretty similar to Spoiler Alert in the way that it's like got elements of Christmas, but it's not like an actual Christmas movie. And then honorable mention, you know, shout out to a previous episode, Go, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We We have to give a shout out to that. And... Last but not least, I always include this clip on my Christmas mix as well. Jingle Bell Rock for Mean Girls when they're performing at the talent show, because how can you not have a mix created by an out gay man and not include Jingle Bell Rock? (laughs) So how about you? Well, my number one favorite scene comes from a Hong Kong movie by Wong Kar Wai, 2046. It's a very melancholy movie, and there's one particular Christmas sequence that is some of the most melancholy the movie gets. The scenes put to Nat King Cole's Christmas song, which is fantastic. So keeping with Asian cinema, there's also a film from Japan called Survive Style 5 Plus, which has never officially been released in America, probably because of music rights, I think. But you can find it if you search for it online. That one's like not really Christmassy at all, but it ends on Christmas. Uh, and there's a lot of crazy set and costume design that's really sweet. And then I grew up watching Rocky IV all the time, and that final fight scene, Rocky versus Ivan Drago, takes place in Russia on Christmas. And then there's the James Bond film, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. There's a few Christmassy themes there, which I think they even created a Christmas song for. But the villain Blofeld even says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Bond. And then I was kind of torn with movies that I consider Christmas movies, but I know some people don't, so I didn't know whether to include them. In case there's anyone out there that doesn't consider Batman Returns a Christmas movie, which it 100% is, the final scene in that movie I think is fantastic, where he sees Catwoman in the alley as it's snowing, but then he goes and just finds the cat, and then he gets back in the car, and Alfred says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. Yeah, and the, the music and the score for that last part is just, like, so fantastic. I was going to say, it almost kind of, like, fits into the mood that we're having today with, like, yeah. the, your first pick and, and mine, spoiler alert, that it's sure. sort of this melancholy feeling of, like, everything's going to be okay, but it's not necessarily ending on a happy note. Yeah. Yeah. You do own a TV set, right? I think my roommate Kirby does. 
Is that shocking to you? Shocking? No, it's not shocking. I've heard of people who don't have TVs, but I've never met one. It's nice to meet you. Educate me. What's your favorite TV show? Uh, at the moment, Felicity. They're doing some new things, but it's also got a traditional... I don't know, there's something comforting about it, and the actors are great. Um, is she the one whose haircut almost got the show canceled? It is a brilliant show, and you should watch it. Well, to kind of back up your claims of Spoiler Alert being a Christmas movie, it was released in theaters on December 2nd, 2022, and was already video on demand 18 days later. So it was out for Christmas. And then I thought it was also interesting that then fast-tracked it to be on Blu-ray on February 7th of this year. So they got it right in time for Valentine's Day, too. That's a good point. We'll make you real sad for Christmas <laughs> and then hit you right over the head again for Valentine's Day. Yeah. So the cast and crew. So Jim Parsons is the reason this movie got made. He was also the producer with his husband, Todd Spiewak, based on the book by Michael Osiello. This also stars Ben Aldridge, who I knew from Knock at the Cabin, and Ben's parents in the movie are Sally Field, who's Sally Field, and Bill Irwin, who I know from Legion, the X-Men TV show. The director, Michael Showalter, he he's directed quite a bit at this point. The Big Sick was another big romantic <laughs> dramedy about a uh, terrible illness. I know him from like back in his uh, sketch comedy days in The State and Stella. He wrote and acted in What Hot American Summer. I have to point out too, like I had such a big crush on Michael Showalter. I mean, I still think he's like a, like a total babe, but like when Wet Hot American Summer came out, I was just like obsessed. He's in one of my favorite, I just want to give him a shout out, one of my favorite episodes of Sex and the City called The Post-It Always Sticks Twice, where Carrie goes completely apeshit because, uh, I forget the actor's name, but the guy who played in Office Space, the lead in Office Space, he breaks up with Carrie and puts... Basically, it all on a post-it, and she goes apeshit the next day. And so she goes to a party and runs into just, like, one of his friends, and it's played by Michael Showalter. So shout out to him. Like you said, he's in a lot of that sort of, like, underground comedy-type groups. I know you said The State, but I feel like he's in a lot of comedies around that era. Yeah. Like, his filmography is pretty huge. So the screenplay, co-written by Dan Savage, I was surprised at that, but also David Marshall Grant, and then interestingly edited by Peter Teschner, who is one of those people who really gets his start in 80s horror films like Society, uh, and then goes on later to edit Charlie's Angels and Josie and the Pussycats. And then in terms of what the critics had to say, let me see, it's Rotten Tomatoes page, maybe there's a choice quote in here. Uh, Katie Rye from RogerEbert.com says, This is a nice film, a sweet film, a film you can watch with your mother-in-law. I can see spoiler alerts showing up on holiday watch lists year after year, says Jonita Davis of The Black Cape. Tilt said, uh, Spoiler alert, despite its lackluster direction and oddly generic serial comedy, beats all the odds to reach a rare level of poignancy for mainstream efforts. That seems contradictory for itself. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> kind of like a slam, like a passively aggressive review of the film i guess we can should we jump into it and talk about our our thoughts at the end yes let's take the sleigh ride into spoiler alert so the score immediately sets the scene because as the title types across the screen it fades to a shot of our leads michael osiello jim parsons and kit cohen ben aldrich lying close to each other on a hospital bed and in a voiceover, Michael tells us this isn't how our story was supposed to end, but meeting you in the first place was the plot twist I never expected. We flash back to 14 years earlier, 
And Michael continues narrating as he zones out in a meeting with his colleagues from TV Guide. And so Michael's boss calls on him while he's daydreaming and asks for a pitch. And that's when Michael kind of snaps out of it and says, uh, every Gilmore girl ranked from best to Rory. And I immediately thought of your wife because she is a huge Gilmore Girls fan. Well, we both, Natalie more than me, have an issue with this part of the movie, Josh, because if you kind of calculate what year this is around, it's like 2002-ish, maybe 2003. Uh, Gilmore Girls started in the fall of 2000, so we're like in probably season three of Gilmore Girls right now. Nobody at that time would put Rory as the worst character on Gilmore Girls. Like, when you reach like season five, maybe even season four, sure. But mm, this didn't check out for us. Yeah, that's a more current feeling, right? Yeah. Like people yeah. kind of think of her as like a terrible character now, but not back then. Yeah. And I feel like her being an absolute annoyance hadn't manifested in the show at that point. I do appreciate the commentary from his boss who's like, who's Rory? And <laughs> he, she's like, oh, she's one of the characters. And he's like, which one? And he's like, the young one. <laughs> So, you know, he gives the line, his coworkers laugh, but his boss is completely oblivious and doesn't get it. And so he instead tasks Michael with pitching a new idea, basically that involves Fear Factor. And man, what another like great reference to that era, because I don't know if Fear Factor is still on or if it had a resurgence at some point. But again, it feels like a very dated reference, like of the time, right? Yeah. Uh, so Michael tells us that his job at TV Guide was, in fact, Joe, a dream, especially because he always imagined his life as an 80s sitcom. And we cut to an 80s sitcom sequence, laugh track and all, introducing his family. And I love that they're they're like, there's Michael's younger brother and Michael's older brother. Like, we don't get their names at all, this whole movie. But we insert shots of a young, heavyset Michael getting picked on by his brothers, eventually introducing us to the TV version of Michael's mother. And through voiceover, Michael tells us that he remembers watching daytime soap operas with his mom. And in result, he was determined to make sure his story was not like these sad stories, which oof, it's the first gut punch of the, the movie as, as it goes on. So we cut back to TV Guide and Michael's coworker Nick persuades him to join him for jock night. Um, I do appreciate the reference now being a 40-year-old uh, married man, like <laughs> where he's like, oh, it's a weeknight. Like, no. Yeah. We immediately cut to the club where the banger Can't Get You Out of My Head by Kylie Minogue plays, just reminding you again of the era. And we see scantily clad men dressed according to the theme, you know, it's jock night. And Michael stands by the bar. I love this detail, too, where he's still wearing his, like, suit and dress shirt, but now he's just basically wearing a baseball hat. And he laments to Nick about how he absolutely does not belong there. And I love that Nick's like, sure you do. You're a runner. And he's like, no, I'm a jogger. And then that's when we see Michael spot Kit across the bar and he waves to him. And Kit waves back and immediately approaches him. So the two of them strike up an awkward conversation until Kit's friend Nina interrupts them and tells Michael, oh, you are so his type. And I love that she follows up like, yeah, like, like a dweeb. <laughs> um, and Kit is like, quiet, just stop. And so Kit asks Michael, hey, do you want to dance? But Michael's uptight and he declines. But then as the night goes on, we immediately see Michael loosen up and he eventually hits the dance floor. Two, another banger. You make me feel mighty real. I'm so glad that in my lifetime, I was able to go out to a bar and, and dance at a gay club to this song. Because if I were to go to a club today and ask this in at least downtown Minneapolis at the moment, nobody would play this. It's too old. <laughs> it's not, you know, at the time they're 
had a bar called The Retro Room and they played retro music. That's my biggest beef with going out now. I know I'm old and sounding senior, but the two of them are chatting while they're dancing. And this does lead to a kiss. Ooh. And then we cut to immediately cut to the two of them making out in a dark corner of the bar. And that's when Kit asks Michael if he wants to leave with him. So Michael points out he doesn't even know his name. And that's when Kit finally tells him, revealing it to the audience. I mean, I'm telling you as the audience who this person is. But yes, he finally says, oh, my name is Kit. And Michael gets a total kick out of this, referencing, oh, my God, Michael, Kit, Knight Rider. And he's like, is that the one with David Hasselhoff in the car? So very drunk Nina once again interrupts them and tells Kit that he needs to take her home before she vomits. And that's when Michael hands Kit his business card and, and then the two part ways. So in a voiceover, Michael mentions he never thought that he'd hear from Kit again until we eventually catch back up with them out to dinner. And I believe it's their first date because Michael's shocked to hear that Kit doesn't own a TV. Uh, and Michael reveals he's not much of a drinker and prefers Diet Coke. And so we learn that through conversation that Kit is a photographer by night and a waiter by day. They discuss their views on marriage. Michael says he's a romantic and likes the ritual of it all, while Kit feels society should be more advanced. Michael is a middle child, close to his brothers, but they live far away, don't see much of each other, while Kit is an only child. And then Michael goes on to explain he has the childhood obsessions are Christmas, hey. here we go, <laughs> and soaps, soap operas. And so uh, he begins to list a third, but immediately stops himself. And that's when Kit then goes on to explain he was obsessed with magic at a young age and even had a stage name, Kit the Conjurer. And I do love these little details, Joe. Like, it's very cute when he's like, wait, you have something. And then he reaches behind his ear and pulls out a dinner roll. And it is pretty fantastic because <laughs> the sleeves are rolled up and everything. And he's like, how the hell did you do that? So Michael tells Kit that after high school, he moved to Los Angeles, went to USC, eventually got his job at TV Guide. And Kit tells Michael that both his parents are retired, his father's a world-class putterer, and his mother's a triathlete. And then when he asks Michael about his parents, he immediately tries changing the subject. But he eventually reveals that his father died when he was young and his mother got cancer shortly after. And later, we see them outside. And as people pass, Michael tells Kit he doesn't feel like getting gay-bashed. And so Kit asks him if he wants to get out of there. And he even suggests... Michael's place, but Michael tells him, uh, they just painted my apartment. I don't want to be exposed to the fumes. So they had to Kit's place instead. As they enter the apartment, Michael is introduced to Kit's monosyllabic roommate, Kirby, on their way to his bedroom. And she is definitely an MVP of the film, even though she's in the very minor because yeah. she's pretty fantastic. And that's exactly how she's introduced. Like, he's just like, I have a roommate who's monosyllabic and all she does is stay in and eat bagels all day. Toasted bagels. <laughs> And so we'll see that as the film goes on, there's kind of a running joke. But Kit, once they get into the bedroom, pops a CD in. So this is, again, a great reference because people don't do that anymore. Don't put a CD on, right? And number one, the song number one by Goldfrapp plays. And I have to say, Joe, I didn't give a shout out. I don't know if there's an official soundtrack to this, but I love all the music in this. I mean, it's so fantastic from start to finish. Yeah. My guess is no, because a lot of films don't really do soundtracks so much anymore but if there is i would be hard pressed not to download it because it has all these songs that are very nostalgic for me so he puts the song on offers michael some weed he politely declines kit makes a move and then things start getting hot and heavy until michael immediately freaks out and mentions that he needs to pee 
So he escapes to the bathroom, passing Kirby, eating a toasted bagel. <laughs> and as he's staring in the mirror in the bathroom, we get this another, like another 80s sitcom insert of the young heavyset Michael telling his family, sorry, telling his mother that one of the kids at school called him Dead Dad Mike, the fat fudge packer, and laughed at him. And every time we see these scenes, even if it's something very serious like that, there's this like horrendous laugh track. And it's just like the way it's played off in this film is very like minor. Like it's because of the laugh track and all of that, like you don't feel that bad. But when you really like watch it multiple times you're, and you pick up on these nuances of like, these are things that actually happened to him and it's presented in a comedic way. It's really sad. Like someone calling this poor kid dead dad mike the fat fudge packer and everyone laughing like it's heartbreaking so back in reality michael snaps out of it gives himself a pep talk and returns to the bedroom and the two of them continue to make out and slowly undress and when kit tries undressing michael he freaks out again and tells kit we gotta stop and he goes on to explain i'm an ffk which stands for former fat kid and that he has body issues and I don't want to reveal too much of my personal life, but I will say one of the reasons why this film is very resonant to me is not that I have, I have my, you know, my own stuff, but my husband, unfortunately, is someone who's very similar to Michael in that way, where he will full on say, like, he was an FFK as well. Mm. Like, when we met, he was very thin, but like, I had no idea his struggle with just like, you know, the horrendous adolescence everyone goes through it in their own way but like he particularly had a pretty like rough going of it and so mm -hmm. i think that's why this film really like hits on another level for me too so um kit apologizes to michael telling him that they can stop and just talk and kit breaks the ice by saying uh asking michael when he knew he was gay and he tells him well fifth grade that his mother noticed him drooling over a shirtless Bo brady from days of our lives and Kit is immediately shocked, revealing, oh, well, my parents don't even know. Like, they still don't know. And so, oh my god, Joe, it just keeps getting better and better. Because Edge of the Ocean by Ivy plays, prompting this romantic kiss that leads to more. And again, this is a mainstay for all of those WB shows at the time. Ugh. Whether it was actually in the series or it was sort of one of those, like, ads for next week's episode. Like, I had heard it years ago i never knew who sang it because this was the era where we didn't have shazam we didn't have everything at our fingertips so it's like if you didn't hear someone say this is who sings the song you would never know so i remember hearing it and being obsessed with it but never knowing who it was until years later when i found the roswell wb oh. soundtrack at a half price books for a dollar and i bought it because i was like yeah it's a dollar and i like the show and finally hallelujah finally found this song and have played it to death ever since. So yes, it's very romantic. They're kissing. Um, and then we catch back up with the boys sometime later. And that's when a voiceover tells us Michael changed multiple times before meeting Kit's friends that night. And we see him catch up with Nina, who reintroduces herself, forgetting she already met Michael, but is instantly reminded of Jock Knight and refers to him as, oh yes, the tall dweeb. And Kit offers Michael a Diet Coke very sweetly as they make their way through the atelier and he inevitably wins Dina over and the rest of the friends. And so Kit takes Michael to the roof garden, rooftop garden and snaps a quick photo of them before suggesting they head to Michael's place. And Michael is once again hesitant. 
And Kit is like, hey, what's the deal? What are you hiding? And he finally gives in. He's like, I'm not hiding anything. Fine, we can go to my place. It's far away, but let's go. So Michael tries to stall before going inside his apartment once they're there and turns to Kit and says, I just want to remind you, your friends really like me and I'm just a person. (laughs) So the big reveal is when Michael shamefully opens the door, Kit is greeted by this giant statue of Papa Smurf. And then as he's walking through the apartment, you see more and more miscellaneous Smurfs memorabilia. And the best is when he moves to the bedroom and he's like, oh God, there's more. And he finds it decked from like floor to ceiling and Murph stuff. Uh, Sorry, Smurfs stuff. I mean, it's not hoarder level where it's unorganized. It's very well organized. It's just like wallpapered and everywhere. So I love that Kit's immediate reaction besides silence is, I just don't know what to say. Is is this a fetish? (laughs) He's like, God, no, no. Michael explains it's a hobby and that he started collecting when he was 10. And every Sunday after he helped his mom shop, she would buy him a new figurine. And so after she died, he did take a 10-year sabbatical until eBay came along, which enabled his obsession. Uh, Reminder how much of a godsend eBay was. Like, there's a whole world out there. Oh, yeah. 100%. In fact, even going down to right now, I went on a trip to Chicago recently and I text Joe that I had a lifelong obsession with She-Ra Princess of Power. Oh, yeah. That is my... Equivalent to Smurfs. I had all of them at some point when I was a kid and ended up selling them in sort of this fearfully shameful moment in my life because I was a young boy, like, pressured with playing with dolls. So I've since been wanting to collect them, but they're very hard to find and expensive. And I was at a toy store and found some of them at a reasonable price and bought them. And my husband was just giving me this look like, you are spending what on what? Is this a fetish? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But now I'm the proud owner of at least, I'm looking at them right now. One, two, three, four, five. Five She-Ra action figures, not dolls. So I can relate. But Michael explains the Smurfs thing basically transports him back to a time before his mom died when things were easier. And that's basically why he still keeps all that stuff. Yes, it's some session, but it goes deeper. So Kit is speechless. I mean, Michael begs him to say something, but instead of kind of telling him how he feels about the Smurfs thing, he immediately just says, I fooled around with someone at the gym and I feel guilty. And Michael's like, why are you telling me this? Kit's like, well, I, we never had the exclusive talk and feeling guilty is new for me and that he's never really had a real relationship or boyfriend before. And that whenever he got too attached, he basically ended it. So Kit continues to tell Michael, you know, you scare me. I'm scared. I don't, I've never felt like this before. And Michael echoes that statement by telling him, you know what? I'm actually afraid I'm going to fall in love with you and that you're going to break my heart. And so voiceover tells us that Smurfgate almost derailed the relationship, but by Christmas, they were back on track. And at Kit's place, we see, you know, Kit unwrap a gift from Michael. And I love this because it's a 1960s Sneaky Pete's Broadway magic show box, which I'm not sure if those are real or if they made it for the movie, but to me, it looks like authentic. Yeah. And... Kit is speechless. I mean, he loves it. And Michael tells him he got it off eBay and even resisted buying an ultra rare Christmas Carol Smurf. And so Kit tells Michael uh, he has a gift for him too and leads him to the closet. And inside is the closet is a little sign that reads Michael. And Kit tells him that he basically made him an area for him to leave all the things when he comes over. And Michael stares at him and begins to say, I love you. But Kit immediately beats him to the punch, like saying, I love you. And they fight over who said it first. But 
then, you know, Michael concedes that basically does end up saying it properly, leading to a kiss. We transition to Michael visiting Kit in the hospital, and voiceover assures us that, don't worry, we're not at the bad part yet. It's revealed that Kit actually had appendicitis and was hospitalized. And while Kit is resting, Michael was tasked with calling his mother to let her know that he's okay and to not visit. But Michael's immediately, like, intimidated and intrigued by his mother and mentions that he'll tell him that she's on his, on their way, like, both parents are on their way. So Kit mentions that, oh, my parents always stay with me, so you have to go to my apartment and remove anything that's suspiciously gay. Um, and so we get sort of this montage of Michael and Kit de-gang in that quote of the movie they actually see say that de-gang the apartment it's pretty hilarious because there's a lot of things that are just really obnoxious like that are not gay like a neutral colored sweater that he grabs and just <laughs> is like no no we can't like i gotta get rid of that but of all these items it does include michael's christmas gift and so he takes down he kind of stares at his name for a second and then takes down the, the little sign and you can tell he's he's pretty heartbroken over it so uh another relevant moment i just want to point out is when i lived with my husband for the first time, he was not out to his parents. And so I can relate to this scene as well, because every time they came over, I had to move all my stuff back to the second bedroom and act as if we were not a couple. And they are now accepting, as of today, they know. it's It all worked out in the, in the end. But another reason why I think this is a movie that like just really gives me more feels. So you know what it's like to de-gay an apartment? De-gay the apartment, <laughs> yes. And you know what my solution was to that? Other than moving things out of the main room, I just didn't go. <laughs> Adam would just be there with his parents alone, and I would just leave because I can't hide who I am. <laughs> uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that, right? <laughs> so uh, Michael returns to the hospital after degaying the apartment. He meets Kit's mother, Marilyn, played by Sally Field, who is helping him leave Kit leave the hospital. Kit's father, Bob, eventually enters, and Michael is introduced to the two of them as a friend. And then the gang heads back to Kit's apartment. Inside, they run into Kirby, who's just awkwardly reading a book, like, in the living room next to them while she's eating a bagel. Uh, she stares at Michael, Bob, and Marilyn, who uncomfortably makes small talk while Kit kind of is out of the room doing something. And when he returns, it gets even more awkward because his parents are sort of just trying to figure out, like, what is the relationship to Michael? Like, who is this guy? How do you know him? What's going on? And Kit is dancing around the topic. But I love that it just leads Marilyn essentially to ask, like, what is going on? Who is this guy? And Kit blurts out, he's my boyfriend, followed by, I'm gay. And Michael immediately says, I'm gay too. And I love this, Joe. <laughs> Kirby then turns to them and says, I am also gay. Like, very monosyllabic. <laughs> and this is like the most shocking thing to Michael and Kit. They just kind of look at her like, you are? And she's like, yep. So Marilyn's more upset that Kit didn't feel like he could tell her, pointing out that they talk all the time. And both parents, thankfully, immediately accept their relationship. So we learn that not long after this, Kit and Michael moved into their first apartment together. There's a montage of them moving in and toasting with a bottle of champagne. And then we cut to, again, another Christmas scene where it's their first Christmas together. Basically, we see like sort of a pan of the apartment and... I, I appreciate that we get a quick shot of Michael's toned down Smurf collection in the corner because, again, he's just being himself. <laughs> uh, and then we see miscellaneous Christmas decorations spread throughout. And Michael's wearing a Christmas sweater and dressing up the Christmas tree. And I love that Kit Risky Business like slides into the room 
and gives Michael a hard time about the excessive amount of tinsel, smurfs, and even a bright blinking star like on the tree. He's like, I, I do see some smurfs. And so Michael asks Kit to lie under the tree with him. And he explains that every year when he was young, he would lie under the tree for hours listening to his parents get everything ready. He mentions that he hopes that even when he gets old, he will continue lying under the Christmas tree with his partner and take a moment to appreciate the beauty of Christmas and be grateful because they have each other. This is why I'm considering this a Christmas movie, because this scene is very sweet and very Christmassy. And makes for the uh, the movie poster, right? Mm-hmm. That of them. Yeah, the, the theatrical yeah. poster shows them like underneath the Christmas tree. So... Kit suggests they take their first annual Christmas photo together. He sets a camera on a stack of books, sets a timer. Again, this is another like dated reference. I love that he's using like a physical camera and setting a timer. But when it flashes, it shows us the photo with the year 2003 displayed underneath. And then it proceeds to show like each card they continue to take each year flashing forward to 2014. So Michael and Kit host a Christmas dinner. We see Nina Kirby and her monosyllabic girlfriend. And we also see Nick's new boyfriend, Riley, who proposes a toast to Michael and Kit, mentioning he's envious of their 13-year relationship. And Michael and Kit reveal the two of them have actually been having problems, and so not as all as it seems. And we cut to the two of them in couples therapy. And that's when Kit mentions that Michael's frigid, it's impacting their sex life. Michael laments that Kit's always looking but not touching other men via grinder, which puts him off. Michael is always drunk and Kit is always stoned. Michael spends too much time at work and Kit is always flirting with his coworker Tom Daly, aka Sebastian, who we forgot to mention off the top is played by Anthony Porowski from The New Queers Folk. Oh. He's one of the New Queers Folk guys, and I don't know if he's gay famous or a gay icon or whatever, but like a lot of people have a lot of feelings about him visually. So uh, there's a quick retelling of Michael arriving late to one of Kit's gallery shows where he finds Kit interacting with Sebastian, played by Anthony, and is immediately suspicious. Kit tells Michael he should head home because he has to stay and help clean up. And then when Kit finally arrives home, Michael passively asks why he's late, which Kit tells him, well, I went out with some coworkers afterwards. They get into an argument about Sebastian, and then the conversation spirals out of control, going over all of the issues that they have with one another. So... Cut back to therapy. We see the therapist mention that he thinks the two of them resent each other, but don't want to end the relationship because there is some good there. And so he just suggests the two of them separate. So we return to back to the Christmas party and get this fantastic dance sequence. I love it. Again, set to grooves in the heart by delight. And that's when Michael notices Kit kind of keel over for a second. And then he gets back up and goes on as normal. And later after everyone leaves... Kit once again winces in pain, kind of keels over, and tells Michael he has a literal pain in the ass and that it feels like there's a golf ball wedged up there. And before Michael can react, Kit tells him that he has an appointment with the doctor tomorrow and not to worry. And Michael asks him to please share the results before the two of them hug. And Kit leaves the apartment, heads back to his Brooklyn apartment. So the next day, Michael's in the middle of an interview at TV Line. He gets a call from Kit and answers the phone. And Kit tells him he has a growth and that he's it's being biopsied, but before Michael can launch into his nervous questioning, Kit immediately tells him, it's all going to be fine, and says, uh, just, you know, go on with your life. So insert another 80s sitcom moment where young Michael tells a sad story about how he was picked last for kickball again once we get another laugh track. And that's when his mother tries to comfort him before breaking into a coughing fit. 
and immediately mentions she has a, an appointment with the doctor tomorrow and people shouldn't worry. So sometime later, Michael accompanies Kit to his appointment for the biopsy. And while Kit is recovering, the doctor meets with Michael and she's concerned that the growth is much larger than they thought. And then Kit is recuperating back at Michael's apartment. And while he sleeps in the master, we see Michael on the couch basically having an internal breakdown. So at work, Michael later gets a text from Kit mentioning that the results finally came back. And he reveals he has neuroendocrine, I believe, neuroendocrine tumor, and immediately says, do not Google it. I'm not. So the two of them eventually meet up. Michael admits he did look into the diagnosis and found the three best oncologists and already set up appointments for Kit. And Kit tells him he doesn't want to drag Michael through this, especially because of their current relationship status. But Michael tells him, I'm not going anywhere. So we get a montage of doctor's visits. The first two doctors are pretty optimistic and mention that the tumor is non-aggressive and completely treatable. And then the third, which I think Michael goes into this whole rant about like how she looks like she walked right out of the, you know, off a set with hair and makeup and was like fantastic. And by far their favorite doctor drops the truth bomb saying that he actually, Kid actually has a really aggressive form of can uh, cancer and that he's at an advanced stage. And when he's asked what stage, he's, she tells him stage four and Kit is immediately gut punched and asked to leave the room. We get kind of this long scene of just like Michael and the doctor sitting in silence overhearing Kit crying in the next room. It's really heartbreaking. And then we see later Michael taking Kit out to eat. Basically, Michael asks Kit if he's asked any, told his parents about what's going on with their relationship, but also this cancer. And... Basically, he says, like, you have to tell them because I'm running out of excuses. I don't know what else to tell them and I can't stall anymore. And so Quiet Houses by Fleet Foxes starts playing as the two of them sit in the restaurant, sharing kind of a heartbreakingly quiet moment together. Kit takes Michael's picture and Michael does the same for him before they sort of hold hands and stare at each other lovingly. And then the two of them end up driving to Kit's parents for the weekend. And that's where we see Marilyn immediately pick up on some tension and later that night at dinner, Kit does eventually tell them everything. And through voiceover, Michael mentions that it was the longest 20 minutes of his life and he'll never forget how brave Kit was telling them. And there's a brief scene of Michael witnessing Marilyn crying with Bob in their bedroom, which prompts, once again, another 80s sitcom moment, which I think by far is the saddest one, <laughs> where the young Michael arrives home, calls out to his mother, and is like looking for her everywhere, but there's no answer. And so he basically just sits on the couch, turns on the TV, and is all alone. And is just sitting in silence watching TV. It's like so sad. So Michael and Kit arrive at his first chemo appointment. Michael dresses down the nurse immediately, mentioning that Kit has rectal cancer and cannot sit comfortably in like just a normal chair. The nurse kind of tries to calm him down by saying, well, look, we don't have any beds available. But Michael queens out, yelling, give my husband a bed, pounding his fist on the counter. Um, and this prompts them to thankfully find one because they're like, not today. I'm not dealing with this. And so Kit jokes, you know, that Michael's performance was Oscar worthy. And I love that he tells them, well, it worked for Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> so through a series of scenes, we see Kit start to lose his hair, that the chemo stopped working and the cancer is spread. Michael helps Kit through some of the hardest days and nights and eventually moves from the couch back to the master. And Kit is instructed later to stop chemo so it can allow time for his body to heal. They then say, once you're healed, we'll move, undergo radiation. And this actually does start to improve his health and his situation. 
So there's a quick scene of the two of them hanging out with friends. You see Sebastian joining them, which immediately kind of like sends Michael into a tizzy. And then we get a wonderful, gorgeously uh, melancholy scene of Michael Kitt and his parents heading to the beach for the weekend, where Michael records footage of the four of them enjoying their trip. That night, Michael and Kitt establish their love for each other and are intimate once again. And then during their, which by this, by the way, Joe, I have to just say this movie is PG 13 and I was not expecting this scene. They're basically giving each other a hand job. And I was like, Whoa, oh, yeah. this is a <laughs> PG 13 movie. Like, I don't remember what the requirements are, but I'm surprised this one slid. The ratings board sometimes seem to have more of an issue when it's same sex couples doing yeah. sexy things than like heterosexual couples. So. During their trip, Michael and Kit are sitting on the beach watching the waves. Kit mentions he's got a headache. Uh, he basically has a sudden headache. And then we immediately cut to the doctor telling him that he has nodules that have spread near the brainstem, which is causing the headaches. And the doctor predicts that he has about six weeks and all they can do is address Kit's symptoms and manage his pain. Um, so on their walk home, Michael tries to come up with an alternative options, but Kit tells him he's relieved because now he finally knows where he stands. And that night... This is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, actually. Kit is, like, getting high. And not just because he's getting high, but he's he's out on the patio, like, smoking weed. And Michael asks, basically sits down next to him with a glass of wine, and they get very serious. And Michael asks, are you afraid to die? And Kit mentions, he's afraid of what the end looks like, but he's not, he's had a great life, and he's not afraid to die. And Michael asks, if point blank, like, did you sleep with Sebastian? I need to know. And he does say yes, but immediately apologizes. And that kind of leads into both trading apologies for various things that they fought about over the last few years. And then equally, they also share compliments of one and of one another. And in fact, I love that Michael just says, I'm sorry I never told you basically how beautiful you are. Because I was afraid if you understood how beautiful you would leave me. And Michael breaks the tension by essentially asking, can I try some of that pot of yours? I love the way he just kind of is very nerdy about it. Very Jim Barsons about it. And so he does and hates it, but, you know, pretty funny scene. And I, I love that Kit's immediate response is, welcome to the Stoners Club. We've been waiting for you for a long time. <laughs> oh, it's so great. And then Kit looks at him lovingly and asks Michael to marry him. So we cut to the courthouse. Nick and Nina join them. Crash. I love this too. Crashing a law and order shoot, <laughs> which is very like so believable in new york like they're probably always filming at the fucking courthouse yeah. <laughs> and they just do not give a shit they're just running right in front and they're like hey get out of our shot um and kit and michael are married and then call kit's parents to break the news and through voiceover michael mentions that they got one last christmas together Woo! where marilyn and bob visit and join you know with some of the rest of their friends and we get another great banger i think one last banger dancing on my own by robin oh, yeah. as they're watching, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race, spending time together. And then again, like this just breaks my heart. It like is so, ugh. once the movie's done, you think about these little moments. But like Michael envisions while they're laying there on the couch next to each other, him and Kit older lying under the tree, under the Christmas tree and like basically what it would have looked like. And then it immediately cuts to the hospital where we see Kit is being admitted and friends and family visit him. Michael invites Sebastian. Sebastian does, you know, makes peace with Michael and thanks him for inviting him. And later, they're all standing. It's Michael and his and Kit's parents, and Kit is just like non-responsive, laying in the bed. And that's where Michael asks the nurse, "How long does he have?" And she tells him it's only a matter of hours, and that he can still hear him. 
So Marilyn and Bob tell Kit how much they love him and not to be scared, eventually leave the room. And that's when Michael climbs in bed next to him. He stares at him until a director yells, cut, which is very disorienting. And then Kit stands up, leaves the room, and Michael is confused as the film crew rushes all around him. And I remember like both of us, Adam and I both had the same reaction. We're like, what the fuck is going on? But we, as viewers, learned through voiceover. It's another fantasy by Michael who basically says, what if this didn't have to happen if this was just a scene? And Michael chases after Kit in the hallway of this film set and introduces himself and essentially tries to get an interview with this quote-unquote character of Kit. But a crew member keeps telling him that they need, you know, he need, they need him, they need him. Kit, you gotta go. Come on, let's go, let's go. And Michael asks, wait, 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 I got a few questions. And says to Kit, basically, what's next for you? How do you feel right now? And eventually it kind of switches to more of a personal question. What about me? What should I do next? And Kit tells them, you're going to be fine. Uh, you're going to be okay. And that's when Michael kind of breaks out of that sort of fantasy and emotionally agrees with him and tells him, you know what? You're right. This is going to be incredibly hard, but I am going to be okay. And then we cut back to Michael still in bed next to Kit, thanking him for the best 13 years for giving him a family and for loving him, and tells him that he can go. And so Marilyn and Bob are seen crying alongside the bed, and inevitably Kit passes away. And so at Marilyn and Bob's home, you see they hold the funeral, and Michael shares a heartfelt eulogy. And eventually Michael returns to his apartment and sits in silence. More sad scenes, because everything around him is reminding him of Kit. Michael is watching the pilot of Felicity and getting stoned. And mentions in voiceover that sometimes the main character just has to take a leap of faith, pack a suitcase, and travel across the country. Which I believe might be a similar line that Carrie Russell is saying, I think, in Felicity. Oh, really? Sometime later, we see Michael recreating basically this, like, visual of, you know, Felicity putting her bags in a taxi cab and, like, driving to the airport because... He is headed towards uh, JFK, where he talks to the cabbie, saying he's headed to Los Angeles. And in voice, final voiceover, we hear him say, What I'd wanted was a picture-perfect romance. What we got was a real love story. And so we sort of have the fake-out credits, where it shows, you know, the details of the director and the writers and all that. But then... <laughs> Just to run you over one more time, if you keep watching, it cuts to real footage of the real Kit and Michael. Basically, it's not of Michael. It's it's the real Kit from the scene where they're at the beach where he's blowing bubbles and it's just sort of them interacting. And it's just really heartbreaking because, again, like a movie like this, you can walk away and be kind of like, OK, that was really sad, but it was a movie. But this one's like, no this was actually a real person and this actually happened. And so we're just giving you like this tender, sweet moment, but it just really like fucked me up. I don't know how you feel, but like just seeing like the reality of it, cause you can't separate it, you know, and walk away yeah. being like fiction, fiction, fiction. It's not real. Everyone's happy. They all lived happily ever after. Yeah. So then it finally ends and that's our end credits. But Joe, I'm dying to know. What did you think? I enjoyed it. Uh, I usually, I typically have problems with true life stories because I feel they they get really over dramatic. And I guess it's more like biopics. I can't stand. That might be my least favorite genre of movie. But this one I thought was effective. 
And I keep feeling like having criticisms, but then feel bad about it that I'm criticizing this real story about answer. So yeah. like no judgments here. You can yeah. have criticisms about a story because we don't know what what's real and what was, you know, fabricated for just the film. I don't want to yeah. say it was fake, but I mean, I'm sure that it was punched up for film. Um, and I don't know exactly what I would have liked more of, but I feel if you're if Michael Showalter was going to do the scenes of the 80s sitcom, like the fantasy, like I liked those, especially what you said when he, he is all alone calling for his mom. That scene's great. I don't know if I wanted more of that. And I also, I feel it actually kind of took me out. Like when you said like, oh, what's going on? The ending when the director says cut and then, you know, it's like, oh, it's the fantasy of them on the film set and Michael's interviewing Kit. It's a fantasy, but it's a fantasy in a different style than the rest of the movie had been building up. So that part didn't hit me as much. But I think overall, it's an interesting story. I don't know. Have you read the book? I haven't. This is something that, again, like, these stories don't necessarily draw me into, like, wanting to read. Like, I, I can watch sure. them in, like, a film, but reading them, I, I don't know, like, at least in in this film, like, or a film, you get these little mo moments, like the grooves in the heart and, like, these kind of fun things that make you yeah. smile that you're like, oh, yeah, like earworms, you know. I'm sure you get these cues in books. It's just, it's different. So. Yeah. No, sorry, long-winded way of saying I haven't read it, but I would I would be up to it, actually. I was curious. And, oh, just one other thing that I guess I just remembered. I thought it was kind of interesting to see Jim Parsons in a role that wasn't Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I actually enjoy Jim Parsons more in serious roles or dramas mm -hmm. than I do comedies because, like, I was never... I, now, I'll be fair, like, I haven't watched Big Bang Theory because there was just something about the show that just wasn't for me. I mean, maybe if I sat down to watch it, I would like it. I just, a lot of those CBS shows, I don't know if it was sort of the ads for them and the promotion and the sort of the hype, but like, I just never was really drawn to them. And so, yeah, I don't know. There's just something about like the comedic stylings of Jim Parsons that never clicked with me, but the drama I love like all day, every day, like I loved his turn in Boys in the Band and that has like its own comedic moments or this, it has comedy in it, but yeah. it's fairly, primarily a drama. So I agree with you on that. And I'm also going to say like, I 100% am with you on the ending when it takes you out with the like cut scene because... Here's my thoughts. I have a love-hate relationship with that moment. I don't like everything from the moment they, they yell cut to when he's like asking him all these questions. But the moment it pulls me back in and I love it is when he's like flips back and is basically looking at him and, and you see like, oh, this was all because this is their way of saying like, I'm trying to say goodbye to you and have an interaction with you. And it, I almost wish there was a better way that they could have did it instead of this like sort of over the top, like, oh, I'm an actor and I'm interviewing mm. you and cut. You know what I mean? But I, I liked what they were trying to do. And I think that's the moment I, I felt back in love with it is when they're like, what am I going to do without you? And he's like, you'll be fine. And I had no problem with the 80s stuff. When you see the first one and it does the whole like full house type opening theme, you're, I can see how people might look at it and be like, cringe, eye roll, like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. But then as it goes on, it's styling of 80s sitcom showing that it's supposed to be like this hilarious moment. But in fact, every single scene you see is something deadly serious. And I love that it's like basically his way of like making something serious light. 
even though it's really dark and fucked up. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, this has only been out since last Christmas, but do you see this being a uh, holiday tradition? I don't know if I would say a holiday tradition, but I definitely would say this is a film I would watch once a year because regardless of how it ends and the seriousness of it and it having Christmas, like, you know, some, some Christmas movies, like I just listened to a podcast that covered black Christmas, the, you know, original 1970s um, horror film. And they were saying that it was really hard for them to watch that in July because it's so atmospheric that it really is Mm. just, you can watch it. It just doesn't, hit you in the same way because when you're watching it around the season you just take away way more from it and so i feel like spoiler alert is the opposite where like you could watch it any time of year and yes it has christmas scenes but you're not going to be like less impacted because you're watching it in the broad daylight in the heat of summer like i think you could watch it any time of year and and still love it and like i had mentioned throughout my retelling of the synopsis like i find a lot of similarities and relevance to this film and my own experiences in my relationship. And so mm. I think that's why I like it so much. And that's why I'm I'm interested to hear what others say and you, how you feel. Because the last thing I want is me to pick a film to be like, oh, this reminds me of so many things and I love it. And you, then someone else just being like, I can't relate to this at all. <laughs> I don't see it. Like, I don't get it. It's not a good film. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was just kind of interested to see like, how you felt. I don't think you're blinded by uh, relating to it. You know, it's ironic that another uh, cancer film with Queen Sally Field that I 100% relate to and love (laughs) is the inevitable Steel Magnolia Joe. You know it's coming. Mm -hmm. You know it's coming one of these days. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's that's another one that like, I have to say, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about heterosexual relationships and these, you know, like, Southern people that grew up in the South and have this Southern culture that I have no experience with, but like still love it so deeply. And I don't know, like just find it so iconic, the whole film. Uh, but anyway, all right. I was going to ask Joe. So next episode, we're continuing our holiday extravaganza. So did you pick a naughty or nice film? Oh, nice, Josh. You picked a cancer film. I got to <laughs> yeah. balance it out. Well, the one I picked has become quite a holiday tradition since it was first released, somewhat maybe thanks to the era of the pandemic. But I have chosen for my holiday pick the 2019 Netflix movie Let It Snow. Oh, nice. I'm actually really glad you picked this because, Joe, I I think I had mentioned again last episode I was struggling over picking a queer film, and this one came up on a list of potential films because I think it's got another female couple, right? Yeah, there's one. It's it's a basically a teenage version of Love Actually, and one of the stories is queer. Yeah. Okay, I'm so glad I didn't pick it because I 100% was expecting you to pick a movie that you've talked about a lot, which is Santa Claus the movie. I, you know, one day, one day, uh, I thought about, I was thinking about that one and the He-Man She-Ra Christmas special. Ooh. But yes, I think it'll be a, a nice and breezy Christmas. Yeah, it'll, it'll wash the tense, um, <laughs> tenseness away from, from this last film. If you were depressed by this one, that's why I said, I'm glad that we did Babes in Toyland first. Oh, we, dipped, yeah. <laughs> we dipped down a little bit for our, our blue Christmas, but now we're riding high and finishing out 
on a on a on a positive note for the Christmas season. I mean, what are the holidays except divisive highs and lows? Yeah, I was just going to say an emotional <laughs> roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We are your hosts, Josh Gorski and Joe Larson, with sound mix and theme song by Jason Mitchell. And if you like what you heard today, please follow and review on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit us at Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram and contact us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, remember to be kind and please rewind.